This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of Comics in Black and White. Uh, this episode has been long awaited, as is the second episode, which actually hasn't even been released as of when we're recording this, <laughs> because we were waiting on iTunes to finally accept our request. We have been fighting through the holidays to get this ready for you, and iTunes apparently just kind of wanted to take some time off. But now we are on iTunes. We are on Nerdy Legion. You can go to nerdylegion.com. Uh, but if you're listening to this, you already figured this stuff out, so good for you. I don't need to repeat all this. Uh, this week we are talking about Rachel Rising. Rachel Rising is uh, is just proof that if Aaron Bell dislikes something, it's probably really good. Yes. Uh, this I, I hadn't read this ever before. I had read a little bit of Terry Moore before doing Rachel Rising. Uh, I had read actually just the first trade of Strangers in Paradise, uh, which I uh, my last comic shop owner actually, who's still a friend of mine, loves Strangers in Paradise, and I found that other people love Strangers in Paradise. Uh, and so Terry Moore kind of got back on my radar when he came out with the first issue of his newest series, which is called Motor Girl, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not picked up the first issue of that, although I have taken a look at it. Um, but there's just something about Terry Moore's stuff, like his own stuff that he does that it really represents the reason I wanted to do this podcast. He has a concise thought of what he wants to do. His uh, his artwork is simplistic, and because of that, I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I mean, it's it's a real control over everything he does because it's the vision that he has. Uh, and there's just there, there's something about his style when he's drawing his own stuff and writing his own stuff that it's a lot more human it's a lot more real than a lot of stuff that you get in comics like you see these people and like he really represents people very well just normal people often in extraordinary circumstances which rachel rising is certainly normal people (laughs) in extraordinary circumstances i didn't really know what this comic was about at all yeah i had seen it on comiXology sales before I picked up the whole series for like thirty dollars on a Comicsology sale. It's it's six volumes, uh, and I, I believe each volume so far each volume has been six issues. So, yes. you know, thirty six issues, less than a buck an issue on a Comicsology sale for the whole shebang. Um, and I'm about halfway through it right now, Martin. You're about a third of the way through it, so you've read two volumes. I'm right at the end of the third volume. Yep. And uh, so. A lot of times you start something new and it's really exciting at first, but then as you keep going, it starts to – it's still good, but like the bloom is off the rose. I don't feel like the blooms come off this rose. I feel like every time you start to settle in, it kind of blows you away a little bit. What do you think of that? Well, first I need to correct you, Paul, because it's seven volumes. Uh, oh, so, I got an even better deal than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I am a frugal comic shopper, so I like a good deal. It's 42 issues. Um, distributed in seven volumes. But yes, yeah, so um, I had read part of the first volume when it was first coming out. I think it's self-published, right? Terry Moore just does everything by himself. Um, Yeah, it's either a really small label or it's his own label. Yeah, yeah. I think it may just be his own label, though. And he has – I didn't realize this until uh, our friend Ronnie was mentioning stuff that I had no idea Terry Moore did. But it was funny because Ronnie was like, oh, isn't that the guy who did blah, 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 big mainstream comic? I'm like, that's not what anybody knows Terry Moore, Moore for. <laughs> I can't remember what the comics were, but they were ones like he knew because he actually read those – he was reading those comics and just – it happened to be that Terry Moore did it for a little bit. Uh, so he has done a little bit of mainstream stuff. Uh I know for Marvel, I don't know if he's done DC. I don't recall. I looked it up, and yeah, yeah, he did uh, all the stuff he did was kind of whatever. He did um, uh, Birds of Prey for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's it for Marvel. He might have done something else. He's or for DC. He's done some Marvel. He did like a Spider-Man story and a couple other things. Yeah, um, which but, is kind of interesting, and I, I want to check those out a little bit to see. I'm always curious to see uh, some of these indie writers um, that get well known for what they do, which. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole reason we're doing this podcast is that there are some amazing comics out there that don't get the attention they deserve, even though, like, by now they're really well-known and really successful. But still, like, the average person doesn't really know what they are because they're not the mainstream in-your-face stuff. So, I mean, the average person, if they saw Rachel Rising sitting on a shelf, 
wouldn't even notice it. They would just be moving right on because it doesn't have Marvel logos on it, doesn't have DC logos, doesn't have the superheroes are used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, well, I'm always interesting to see what those guys do when they do those superhero mainstream comic books because sometimes they do them really well and they're interesting. Sometimes it just feels like a paycheck job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think in terms of Terry Moore, I mean, what I know Terry Moore from is Strangers in Paradise, which we talked a little bit before we started recording. Um, but that's what I, where I know the name from. And but he's been around for forever, dude. Like he was doing image work back in the day, and I think he'd had um, he's he's done a lot of self published stuff. Echo, uh, yeah, Strangers Echo, was, yeah, uh, Motor um, Girl is what's what's coming out now. Yeah, so I mean, he's basically had three big self-published things, and all three of those things are—I mean, there are people who really love them, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, you know, I mean, they have—they have the acclaim, and it's just not the acclaim that you're going to hear about unless like you're you're in tune with those kind of comics. And the thing with comics too is it's it's hard to be in tune with all those things. Like you really do have to have somebody recommend it to you, and then a lot of times it's overcoming the barrier of okay, well, so and so recommended this, but you look at it, you're like. Mm. You know, it doesn't grab you visually. Yeah. So you just move, you move on. And I mean, it took me forever to read Usagi Ojimbo because of that. And then as soon as I started reading it, I bought all of it so I could read it all. And I'm still working through that, you know? Um, it's kind of the same thing. I had read one volume of Strangers in Paradise before and I liked it, but I didn't think a lot of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, th- then I got this and I just like it. Once you see a couple of different things from somebody and realize that you like both of those things or all of those things, then uh, you know you, you can feel pretty safe in diving into it. And that's kind of what I've done with Terry Moore now. I, I had no fear buying all of Rachel Rice. It was a good enough price, like whatever. If it's just so-so, it's still affordable so-so. Uh, but now I'm, I'm working on getting some of uh, the stuff in floppies because some, some stuff, especially some of this indie stuff, like having the original floppy in your hand – and looking at the presentation says a lot more than that does when you're going back and buying some old Marvel and DC stuff. Like there, are, there's Marvel and DC stuff that has that. You know, it's worth doing that with also. But um, you know, I mean, to go back and uh, try to think of an event, I don't know. It, you're not going to get anything out of going back and getting Avengers versus X Men in floppy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not going to add anything to the experience. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I don't know if you went back and, and got. The Dark Phoenix Saga in floppies, it would probably add a little something different to it, you know? Mm-hmm. But with indie stuff, it could be not that old, and it could still add a lot to the experience because you see, you know, what the art looks like actually printed, uh, the presentation, the quality of the paper, uh, you know, the quality of the cover. Um, you know, looking at a digital cover, it's different than looking at a physical comic book cover, even if though it's the, the same art. Like, it feels very different. It's just like uh, I was talking to somebody about Louis LaRosa art, and they were saying that the art in Savage wasn't as good as other stuff they had seen. Mm-hmm. But I asked what they had seen, and they said, oh, I saw this and this at, at Justin Ehart's house. And I said, well, <laughs> were you looking at original art? I don't think we ever continued the conversation, but I wondered because, you know what? Original art compared to a reproduction of that art, not even close. Like, mm-hmm. it, same picture, just reproduced. Like, there's something tangibly different about that, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's a big tangent about why I'm... In, in, in the last episode we recorded of our other podcast, we talked about collecting and, you know, why, why people collect. And it's nice, too, to have something to collect that's actually pursuable. And you can get a lot of these books for very cheap if you just keep your eyes out for them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's fun to have something like that to hunt down too and and to piece together a collection. Yep. I agree. Um, I'm I'm curious, Paul, because you're a little bit farther ahead than I am. I've read the first 12 issues. You've read the first 18 issues. If you, if you had to summarize what Rachel rising is about, just give me like a sentence or two. You really find out in third volume. Well, like you, so that's you, what, so that's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. See if you can summarize it for me. because uh, because before I read this, I had an idea because I've heard about this book before. Okay, uh, and I, it's been long enough since I've read whatever was like two issues of it, uh, where I had forgotten anything about it. Um, but I, I've heard other of our friends talking about Rachel Rising, 
and they've described it a certain way. And when I read the book, I felt like that wasn't quite it, that it was a little bit different um, for me at so, least. So I, I, I'm going to try to describe it without sharing anything, any of the knowledge that I've gained in the third volume because the third volume uh, unleashes a lot about what the story is. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is a, a point that I, I wanted to get to also is, is how it goes as it goes on. Um, so Rachel rising, it starts off as a story about a girl who died, mm-hmm. but isn't dead. Mm-hmm. She's not a zombie. Mm-hmm. She's not alive sort of, but she is alive sort of. She it's like, it's like she's herself, but without being alive. So I mean, she's just in a weird state that she can't understand. Other yes. people can't understand. People don't know how to accept it. Yep. So it's it's a lot of a lot of it is about a, a normal girl who is in a state that nobody knows how to understand. See, <clears throat> I think that's interesting because I haven't gotten to the th- third volume, and my thoughts on this book have changed after every volume. Mm-hmm. Because yes. before before I read it, I just kind of got like a horror story with zombies. That's what people tell me. Because maybe because they know I like zombies. Really, that's it's, what they told you. I would what, not at all use the word zombies to describe I, this. I, I like, wouldn't did, either. I wouldn't either. Once I started, yeah. Reading. But, but like, that is that, the most misleading thing I've ever heard. Well, I, mean, I, that's... I think I think part of it is because everyone knows I love zombie stuff. So if you say, "Hey, there's a zombie in it," I'm going to read it. Um, and so. So that that was the first impression that I got. Then upon reading it, I was like, "Well, she's not a zombie." And matter of fact, I think they even say it in the book. Um, I think when when Jet comes back to life, her best friend, mm-hmm. um, like she calls herself a zombie, and they're like, "Well, you're not a zombie because blah 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 blah." Um, but the first the first volume, you you kind of, I would summarize the story as maybe, girl comes back to life. After being murdered by a serial killer, until she realizes there's more at play than what she first sets out to believe. Yeah, see, in, at the beginning, so you said serial killer, but my first impression was that she was like, she was like on a date and murdered, and probably you know probably assaulted and murdered. I don't want to get like more graphic than that because I don't want to like no 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 yeah that's graphic on this podcast but I mean that was kind of I mean she was choked to death and buried by somebody yes and didn't know what was going on and, and came back to life so I mean that was the kind of the impression that I got is you know it was it was a different situation like that so I thought this was going to be a story about her coming back and like getting revenge on her killer well, which I might have kind of been led that way from reading Re- Revival because in Revival. Um, the main character's sister is uh, is killed by her lover, who's a married man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that, that that may have been part of what slanted it that way. Although in Revival, I can't recall. It's been a while since I've read it. I didn't read through the whole thing yet. But uh, I don't know if they ever actually like showed clearly that that was who killed her. I don't remember. But anyways, that was kind of my impression. So it's like, okay, she's coming back and she's going to get revenge like that's kind of what i thought the book was going to be about fair and then it wasn't about that and this other weird stuff happens and like one of the things that really struck me at the end of the first trade and once again struck me at the end of the second trade is you think it's kind of one thing and then something crazy happens and the direction shifts well so that's what i'm saying because it changed for me consistently so back to back to this serial killer point so that's what i thought at first and then even when you meet when when Rachel goes to find Jet after she wakes up from being dead for three days, um, she goes to find Jet at that jazz club, and you have that whole uh, situation with the man and the woman that are going to get married, and Rachel finds her in the bathroom, tells her like how she's going to die, and then you meet this mysterious blonde woman who talks to the man and kind of convinces him that the woman's cheating on him, and so therefore he ends up killing her. Yeah, and, he, and she doesn't convince him by, like, talking him into it. There's some kind of, you know, some, something going on there. Like, yeah, yeah, because something you, she, she, she touches control. him. Yeah, you, she touches him, yeah. and you see, like, smoke coming out of his, his body. Yeah, uh, some kind of supernatural control thing going yeah, so, on there. Yeah, so see, so for me, that kept cementing the fact that this is a serial killer story, 
but the serial killer is kind of a supernatural being, either a, a witch or some kind of magic is involved or some kind of you know demon thing is involved, whatever it is. Um, and then you meet Zoe, the little girl, who kills her sister. Mm-hmm. And then Zoe and that guy end up meeting in the woods, and you have that whole thing. That, like, the woods are where, where Rachel woke up at the beginning of the story. Um, so yeah, me, and that's where it's transitioning from the first trade to the second trade. So you start to correct. settle in, and you think you get where the story's going, and then all of a sudden it shows this little girl, like, savagely and calculatedly kill her sister and then drag her out and throw her in a car. And yes. then I, I believe that's where then the, the second volume starts, and you see her, like, taking her out to the woods she actually runs into the guy that killed his fiance, who was out there burying her body. Yep. And he, she gets him to help her bury this body, and then kills him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just it, it keeps going crazier and crazier from there. Um, and you, like each trade. So first of all, you, you're two volumes through. I'm I'm almost three volumes through. Reading two volumes. Do you still get the sense that Terry Moore, this is all part of the bigger plan? Like, he wrote this for 42 issues. Is that what we said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 42 issues. I believe that the story, like, he knew the story beginning to end before he wrote any of this. Like, is that the impression you get from yeah, it as no well? Doubt. No doubt. Yeah, yeah, like, I don't have any doubt. Like, he's not making this up as he goes. Like, you like you know, a lot of comics would be where... You don't know if if you're gonna get uh, cut off after six issues, so you're like you're, you're writing a small story, and oh look, we still get to keep going, so I'm gonna make the story bigger now. No, this isn't that. Like this, the story, there's a plan to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but between volume one and two, it just like everything drastically changes on you, doesn't it? So like everything feels fresh again. Well, not drastically, but so so that goes to my point because once you get to the second volume. Um, you you have the woman. Do you find out who she is? Kind of, but not really, because there's a few twists to that blonde woman as well. Um, but you you get to learn more about her because she's looking for Zoe, the little girl that killed her sister in the first volume. Um, and as she's doing so, you see that Zoe pretty much kills anything that she comes across. Mm-hmm. You know, because like when when she goes to that house where Zoe's hiding. There's like a trail of dead cows, right, all up and down the hill. And then in the house, the old couple that owns it, we can assume, are dead. And there's Zoe just hanging out, right? And so they mm-hmm. have this whole conversation where that's that's when the story changes again, mm-hmm. when Zoe and Lilith are having their conversation. Because um, then you find out that Zoe – we can spoil the shit out of this, right? Yeah. Okay. Because then you find that I mean it's not like it's not a new comic anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is why we tell people ahead of time what we're reading next. If if anybody's listening to this, they shouldn't be listening to this. Oh, maybe I would like to read that. No, yeah, yeah. we've been saying from the beginning like we're telling you what we're going to read so you can read it ahead of time. But even then, like we're only going so deep into it because yeah, neither yeah, sure, of us sure, have sure, finished sure. it. So. so so Zoe and Lilith are talking in this house, and it turns out that Zoe is possessed by a demon. Uh, named Malice, and that's where the the, na- the the root or for evil, right? So he he was the original angel. So he'd be like the devil, I assume, right? Because um, Lilith calls him the first archangel. Um, and how I would love to have seen you before you became this evil thing. Um, so you get that whole thing, and, and at that point, it almost seems like Lilith isn't a bad guy, right? Because in the first volume, you come to to believe that she is. Because anytime anybody shows up, Zoe sees her, and Zoe's like, whenever she shows up, somebody dies, right? Yeah, and you're still kind of left not knowing if it's you know something bad about her or she's just in this position where these bad things happen around her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but as it goes on, like it becomes clearer and clearer, like she she is a bringer of death. Like she just kills things, and that farm makes it totally clear. Cause she goes, she's going through this farm, killing every animal, and she goes into the farmhouse and, and murders the farmer, husband and wife, while they're sitting watching TV. And then she goes in the kitchen, like pours herself a bowl of cereal or something. Yep. Yeah, and she's very nonchalant the whole time. Like even when she yeah. kills her sister, right? Well, um, yeah, and the thing with killing her sister is at that point you don't know is that something that's out of necessity that we don't know. 
is her sister abuse? I mean, her sister was coming out very abusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're like, well, is you know, is she protecting herself? Is she, uh, you know, has stuff been building and she's afraid her sister's going to kill her? Plus, at first, like she whacks her sister with the frying pan. She's so like, oh, you know, she's fed up with being abused. Then she saran wraps her <laughs> freaking face. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh! I didn't even realize till they mentioned it again later. She burnt the house down. She murdered her parents. Yeah, the, yeah. these were her foster parents because she was going foster home to foster home. And uh, have you found out more about her yet at the point that you've read? I, d- I actually don't want to spoil what you haven't read because you're right behind me on it. So, so yeah. So as part of volume two, uh, you learn that Zoe is like 55 years old. Exactly. Yeah. So she's been this little girl. She's been uh, possessed by this demon, but she's been a little girl for over 50 years. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it's strange because, I mean, there's so many different ways that just knowing that information, you could think it might work out. But the thing is, yes, she's 50 something years old. But once she gets separated from the demon, like she has some like greater knowledge, but she still comes across like a little girl. So it's like it's not like she matured beyond. You know, it's not like she's a. Uh, um, what was it? Interview with a vampire, the the little girl vampire oh, right, that's always pissed right. off because she mentally is much more mature. Yep. Zoe's not necessarily that much more mature mentally. It's like well, she didn't be maturing, so, but in some ways she has. So, from from my understanding of how it works, um, because when when Lilith ties her up with that whatever that some kind of tree, mm-hmm. um, I assumed it was like uh, the tree of good and evil um anyways some kind of tree she uses the magic and ties zoe up and that's when she talks to malice um and then later on in the arc when malice actually leaves zoe's body um is when you kind of get to see kind of how zoe thinks and talks um she does she doesn't seem like she's 10 right but like she's been stuck in this 10 year old body or eight-year-old, whatever it was, for 47 years, I think is what they said. Um, so her body remains the same because this demon is possessing her. And because the demon is inside her, she won't age. So my assumption is because her body doesn't age, the same goes for her mind, right? Um, and so maybe, like, the the little hint of maturity that we see in the hospital when, when she and Malish are talking um, is more as a result of the incident at the farm where she tried to kill herself to kill Malice. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, she definitely at that point, she, she gets herself separated from Malice and her mind is, is freer and she, she took an opportunity to do something. I mean, she tried to kill herself. Yeah. Because she knows that she's she's a killer, she just brings death. Right, um, and see, and the, the thing is, we're we're assuming that because she's trapped in a ten year old's body, that she's got no like higher capacity. But I mean, I've met some pretty mature kids, you know, ten, eleven years old. Um, so I mean, to me, it's very possible that none of these thoughts ever came into her brain because of malice possess- possessing her the whole, the entire time. The, the yeah, I think it, it like stunted her mental growth in a way. Yes. But well, it, not, she, not just she that. Still, it does... But he can also cloud her thoughts, right? So she would never yeah. think about doing this with while he was still inside her. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that in a way, in a, like in some way she's been mentally stunted to where she is still like a 10-year-old girl in ways mentally but in other ways she has a i mean she's been exposed and has a, a bigger understanding of things and has this higher capacity because of what she's done what she's been exposed to even just having the wherewithal when she had that moment where she was separated enough to try to kill herself you know she wasn't being controlled and but i mean to make that kind of decision as a, I mean, as a ten-year-old, even as a fifty-year-old, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it does show like a greater grasp on things. So it, it's, she's a very interesting character for that. I mean, she there are times that she comes across like a scared little girl, legitimately, and there are other times that it's like when, when she is able to like be calm and think about stuff, she can make much more mature thoughts because. She's th- it's almost like thinking through all these things that she's experienced that she hasn't been able to think through before. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, but you know, once you once you get the whole backstory of of Malice and Lilith, uh, things changed a little bit again for me. Uh, I mean, part of it kind of reinforced the whole magical demonic thing that I was expecting in the first arc. Um, but then you get this whole backstory about you know, like if he's the first archangel, right? And she's Lilith, so that makes her the first woman before Eve. Like. There, there has to be a lot more than anything we can possibly imagine uh, has been discussed in the in the first two volumes to to their backstory. Mm-hmm. Yep, that, that and that's what I'm saying with the third volume. This is why I didn't want to like just share what my thoughts are at this time. Yeah, uh, it it's a another bit. It's it's almost like telling a different story that continues being the story. I, I mean, volume one and two are the same thing. Mm-hmm. As as we keep on unveiling more, they're telling sort of like, I mean, each each story can be looked at as its own story for each volume, uh, but it's unveiling this bigger story more and more. It's like each volume is throwing it open a little bit more, and like I'm very interested to see as we keep going what you know, like what's going to come next. And that that's what's made this series, you know, it's like I started off reading it and I liked it. But plowing through 42 issues of anything gets to be really hard. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't feel like that because you get to the next volume and you want more because this is a good cliffhanger type of story. Mm-hmm. But it's also not a story that is only relying on cliffhangers. This is a story that's telling you about people, get you're getting to know them better. You know, so you you feel compassion for some characters, you feel loathing for other characters, and then that stuff gets flipped on its head sometimes. Uh, like through the first two volumes, a lot of the characters that you feel like are victims, you're going to find out that some of those characters aren't actually victims. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, in the next volume, um, I mean, no, the, the little girl I, already is, is the first example where you're like, oh, poor little girl. And you're like, what's going on? She's killing all these people. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's possessed by a demon. Oh, she's not possessed by the demon, but she's still going around killing all these people. What's going on? Well, know? no, I, I kind of got that. Um, and there, there's a few things that are tipping me off to, to what could be coming next. Um, and that, not, not like specific story elements, but just the way the characters are and interact. Um, so one was in the second volume, uh, Jet dies, right? So they uh, – Rachel and Jet and Johnny – the Rachel's aunt are driving, and they find Zoe in, in the alley, and they're they're going to take her to the police, and they get into that accident, right? So everybody di- – well, Jet dies, and then ends up coming to, back to life, which, by the way, was awesome. Like, that, that whole sub-story with Jet, I really dug. In particular, her relationship with the coroner – I can't remember his name – um, but like her body is severed in half, her neck is pretty much just loose. It's hanging by the skin, um, and like there, she's got that line where like he, well, he's got that really cool, uh, like three or four panel page, um, where he, when he's looking over her dead body and he's like, I'm gonna take care of you. You're so beautiful. Like he knows she's dead, right? Like he's not being mm-hmm. a creeper. Like he he was in love with her. Yeah, and that's one thing that this uh, this book does well is there are times where it get, it makes you feel so uncomfortable about what could happen, um, and that was one of them. It's like uh, this guy, like he already was a weird guy, yeah. But then you're seeing him do this, you're like, oh my gosh, where are they going to go with this? Well, but there's and then it's touching because but there's, but there's precedent for it, right? Because when Zoe is um, at the foster care agency, and that couple comes, mm-hmm. right? Like after she burns her house down. Um, the the foster care lady, she's like, okay, you're gonna stay with this couple for a couple of days while we find where your family is, and like the dad is a child molester, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you have that whole thing there, and then you have the doctor, Doctor Seaman, mm-hmm. um, who his wife has been dead for thirty years, but he like he still, it's like uh, what's that movie, the Psycho? Right where Psycho talks to his mom and she's been dead for whatever many time many many years. Like yeah, it's, just, it's the same thing, right? His wife's been dead for thirty years, and he's super interested in Rachel and now Jet. That now that Jet's come back to life, uh, because his wife's been dead for thirty years. So he wants to find out what he can do to bring his wife back to life. So you have like all these creepers. Well, and and, and Johnny to some extent, right? 
Rachel's aunt. Um, she's a funeral home attendant. She's she's the coroner. She's just she, uh, she's laid up. The coroner, okay, but she's crazy. Uh, yeah, she's dealt with dead bodies all the time. So like yeah. when the first time she sees Rachel after Rachel dies and comes back, she doesn't believe it's Rachel. She thinks that she's like having a, a hallucination, like a, a visit from somebody. That's just it's because she's all the time spending her time with dead bodies. Right, right. So she's like imagining interactions with people so, and. <laughs> this book really keeps you on your toes. It <laughs> does. It does. It really does. So, so when when Jet Connolly comes back to life, she she's in the in the morgue with this guy, right? And he's been like super sweet, but it looks kind of creepy. Uh, but then it turns out like it's really not creepy, right? Like, and even Jet sees it uh, because like her spine is severed, and she's like, "Can you come hold my hand?" She's like, "I can't feel anything, but I can feel it when you touch me." Right, and I mm-hmm. thought that was like a super tender moment. Yeah, uh, they have some moments like that, and that's that's really one of them. Where that guy, he, you know, he it's like he's been watching Jet from afar in the living world, and you know, he knows that he's never gonna get a, a young, attractive girl like that to care about him, but like he legitimately cares about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when she dies, it's like he's upset. He just he wants to take even you know even in death he wants to take care of her body and you know make sure she's treated with uh, with respect and and with love. Yeah. And then she comes back and he just like all he cares about is taking care of her. You know whatever mm-hmm. whatever she needs. Um, did you get to the part yet? This may be uh, in the next volume that you haven't gotten to yet, where the doctor with the dead wife is advising him on what to do to bring her back. No. Okay, you haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, that is some messed up stuff. <laughs> Wait till you get to it. Yeah, this 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 whole story. So I mean, we've basically talked about the first two volumes, and we don't want to talk about the third because you you're right there. Uh, but so this. Well, I want to talk about the end of the second volume, though. Okay, how does it wrap up? Because since I've read so much, I don't remember the specific like cut cut points you know yeah yeah so so in the in the back half of the second volume jet becomes possessed by oh, malice yes, yes. Mm-hmm. right because she goes she's she's watching over zoe in the hospital while rachel goes to find the mysterious blonde woman um and so during that time malice leaves zoe's body and goes into jet's body um and jet kind of goes in a murder spree and where malice ends up possessing that preacher um my assumption now based on the way that it ends is that jet is now dead um yeah so malice first of all malice was able to leave the little girl because she killed herself she actually did die they just resuscitated yes, her yes because correct. she died he was freed from her body which lilith the witch uh didn't want that to happen like mm-hmm. he was contained within her, mm-hmm. um, so he gets out and he's able to go possess Jet because even though Jet is like animated, Jet's dead. That's why he was able to possess her. Right. And then right. Uh, at the end, when he possessed the priest, he kills the priest. Then he has to kill Jet to leave the dead Jet body and right. go into the dead priest body. Yeah, which the way that was handled was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's more interesting to me is Rachel finds Lilith. In the woods, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the first thing, for the first person she runs, Rachel runs into, is Zoe's dead sister, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of weird because I don't remember the sister being brought back to life. Um, so I must have missed that part. No, nope. um, you didn't. Uh, yeah, I don't think you missed it. Okay, yeah. So they didn't talk about it. Yeah, um, it just it wasn't consequential yet, and this is where it's starting to get more consequential. Well, be, the reason I say that is because I wasn't sure when Lilith goes to the wood. Not Lilith. Uh, I mean, you know what? Maybe it was Lilith. Uh, Lilith goes into the woods, and the two wolves are uh, digging up a body mm-hmm. in the woods. I wasn't sure if that was Zoe's sister or if that was um, the other woman's fiance. That there it's was one. It's, it's it's one of the two. I honestly I don't remember which is which at this point. Now I want to go back and get it straight because. At the point you're at right now, uh, it's it's starting to make a, another transition in the story, and this is what I, I like. I don't want to give away what comes next, but yeah, yeah things are happening with all these people we've seen die. So, so the most interesting thing though is, 
Rachel finally meets up with Lilith. And Lilith tells her the story, which we kind of got hints of in volume one, right? So the place where Rachel comes back to life and where all these other bodies are being buried and being brought back to life. Uh, it's called, what is it? Something Fire. Fire Hill? 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 Something. Somewhat. I don't remember yeah. offhand, but yeah. We'll, we'll say Hill Fire. Uh, because apparently a bunch of uh, witches were burned there hundreds of years ago. So at the end of the second volume, Lilith and Rachel meet up, and Lilith tells her the story about the fire hill, hill fire, whatever it is, and how she was there, and so was Rachel, and so was the other woman that who the fiancé killed her. Uh, she was there, and... I don't know. There were a couple other ones. There were like four different one, four different people. Okay, and these are four people that have been brought back to life throughout the story, as we've read so far. Um, and there's a whole like witch hunt thing, and there were a hundred women uh, beaten and burned and hung and whatever else, uh, but only four of those were witches, and the rest of them were just normal women from the town. Uh, and the catch kind of was that you know. You always hear stories about uh, witch hunts and the witches being burned, but the thing is, witches are immune to fire. And so all the people that were killed in this place uh, were not witches. And um, my assumption is that will have, if true, that would have some repercussions into what comes next into the story. <clears throat> However, my assumption is none of that is true, or at least very small parts of it are true. Uh, because even Rachel calls it out. And that's what I like about Terry Moore's writing. Um, like, if you pay attention to the story, you catch things of, of where he wants to take the story. And if you're not catching them, he kind of uses the characters to guide you along in case you missed it. Yeah, when you get to the point that it's it's turning the focus to those things that he's been dropping hints about. Yeah. Then you go back and like, oh my gosh, like right. you know, this was like this pathway was already laid out for us. Yeah, um, and that's where like it, I, I kind of wish we were at the same point with it because I I didn't remember exactly what you read up to, but like you're starting to see the the track work for the next volume laid out, mm-hmm. um, and you can see that like following this track work, it's the story is taking another turn from where it's been, but it's not like. Um, like I mentioned, like Re- Revival is a comic book that is a, it's a horror comic book. It's a good story, but it's very much a cliffhanger type of book. Like it, it lives off of the cliffhangers. Like you go, holy crap. And then, but if you go back and read it again, it's like, okay, this is a lot less exciting the second time because it's relying a lot on the cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't like that. Like the story keeps on twisting, but it's not. Uh, you know, twists and turns on a sh- in a shallow sense. Like, you know, you turn a corner and there's a monster that jumps out at you. Right. It's the twists and turns like a gnarled tree that is just like, twi- you know, winding into itself. And, you know, you start out like up close with this one, you know, this one branch. And it's just a tree branch. You're like, well, that's nice. But then as it goes on, like you start to get these other branches intertwining with it. And it's getting more complex and interesting. And then, like, as you keep going, it's getting more and more like that. Then you, you step back and you look at the whole thing and you realize that this is, like, a nasty, gnarled, twisted thing mm-hmm. that is just so complex. And it's it, – I mean, it, I you know, for me to binge this much on something, uh, as much as I've read this, it either has to be – like, there's three things it could be. Number one, it's something that I am – uh, I take it back. It's only two. Uh, it's either something that is really shallow, easy, pleasurable reading, you know, just like the the mindless action flick of comics, you know, just like really easy to read. It goes really fast. It's just satisfying. But you read through a whole, a whole bunch of it, and by the time you get to the end, you don't remember everything you read because it wasn't substantial. Mm. Or for me to read this much of something, it has to be incredibly satisfying, uh, which – there aren't many things – I mean there are some really good stories I've read that I have to take a lot slower because they're not satisfying enough to binge this much on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, this is one that like I've read through three trades pretty quickly of it, and I got four more to go. Um, 
the only other things recently that I've done that with is I is like Usagi Yojimbo, where it's just story after story after story. But some of the stories in that are, are just so heartbreaking, and some are so beautiful and simple, and some are fun. And you know, this is it's just such an interesting intertwining of stories. And it's not just this one story that's taking a twist. It's all these stories, but then when you look at the how these things are interweaving, you realize that the twist isn't that you're taking these quick turns. The twist is that what you thought it was isn't what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you look at the whole picture, you're like, oh, this is this is not quite what I thought. Well, and so and so reading volume two, I've, I've started to realize that, right? So you're into like the Revelations chapter. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but when Rachel and Lilith are talking, and Lilith is telling her this whole witch hunt story, Rachel's like paying very close attention, right? Because she wants to know why she died and came back to life, and why her friend did, and you know why this is happening, why that's happening. And so she's paying close attention to see if Lilith has some kind of information. Um, and she quickly realizes that everything that Lilith is talking about is pure bullshit. Right, because she'll like Lilith will say one thing, and she's like, "Wait, so they got burned? I thought you said they were drowned." And she's like, "Um, oh, they buried her. Well, how could they bury her if she was hanging from a tree? You know, like Lilith tells a story, the same the same story, a couple different times, uh, with different details, but they they always contradict each other, and and Rachel is quick to catch on to that." Uh, which I like because as a reader, like I, I consider you and I pretty smart readers, um, and so we catch those kind of things. But maybe a typical reader that isn't used to this kind of book might not catch those little subtleties. Uh, and the fact that the char- the main character is used kind of as as the reader um, to guide the story along, I think is really smart. And I think that's why. I, I will say, as much as I love Bone, as much as I love Usagi, um, of the three books that we've discussed so far for this podcast, uh, this might be my favorite. Um, because it's really smart, and, and it's one whole story, right? Like, Bone is really good for for its kind of whimsical storytelling. Usagi, what it does really well is kind of it's it's the next step beyond, right? Like there's there's a huge overarching story, but Usagi does really well at doing the one and done stories, right? Where yeah, Usagi is more about telling smaller stories that are rooted in history, that are rooted in in things about people and and you know the characters of people and morals and stuff like that. But, but, this but they is relate to the larger because... story. But they relate to the larger story. This, yeah, yeah, this definitely. This is just a large story. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is a large story, and it's they're, – they're very different things they're going for. And uh, you know, I think that in the scope of things, there's something incredibly beautiful about something like Usagi. Uh, and what we're getting with Rachel Rising is – is character development and storytelling to a grand scale that is really controlled without being tedious. Like it's it's his vision. It's definitely like this is an overall vision. Um, but a lot of times when you see that, it can get really tedious because the creator, instead of really being concerned with how they're unveiling these things to the reader hmm. to make it something that is, I mean, you know. Something that can keep you not knowing what's going on, but keep you thinking you know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that's not the easiest thing to do. If you look at some of the other things, uh, like off the top of my head, you look at something like uh, Tolkien's creations. You know, I mean, he created this whole world. There's so much detail, but you know what? When you read Tolkien books, there's so much freaking detail. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> uh, it's 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 work to read it. You know. Um, there's there's a lot to be said for somebody being able to write a story that never feels like work to keep on layering on and layering on and layering on information. Uh, we've been through less than half of this, either of us, less than half of it so far, and 
we know a lot about a lot of the characters. We're getting a sense of the town. We're getting a sense of history. We're getting a sense of the supernatural functions in this world. Uh, we're getting a sense of so many things. This world is really being built, but at no point has this felt like a world-building story. Right. Uh, we've talked about other comic books and world-building, and like I know I, I was talking to to Nick about something one time, and uh, I I sarcastically said something about world-building in a negative way to describe a book and he's like that totally sold me on it I was like I knew it would because you love the world building mm-hmm. um, I, I think like we're talking about Wildstorm and you love that or I started trying to read Planetary I was like I, I can see that this is a good book but I don't really enjoy it and you said well you know you don't have this whole world built for you right exactly so you sent me Wildstorm and I went back and was reading that I was like I don't want this world built for me like this is tedious <laughs> You know, like, I feel like I'm being forced to have this world built, not like it's being unveiled to me. Rachel Rising is just, it's its slowly unveiling stuff. It's not giving you too much at a time. It's giving you just the right amount to to keep building, to keep teaching you about what's going on, to keep it interesting. Uh, it's taking its time. It's letting you get to know people, get, you know, and I mean, just stuff like uh, being able to build this emotional scene with this awkward large coroner or coroner's assistant or whatever exactly he is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting to over time, get to know these two dead girls and see the differences in their character. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a book about a girl that's dead and comes back to life with all this stuff, like it can be so shallow, but like, as we go on, you're getting more of a sense of, of these different characters. Like, look at Rachel. We've talked about her less as a character than we have about a lot of these other characters because some of the other ones, we've gotten a more potent dose of what they are. And I think that Rachel kind of represents the, the, the main vein of the story. And as we keep on getting stuff revealed to us, we're getting more revealed to us about Rachel, too. She starts off as just like, I don't know what happened. You know, I was dead and now I'm not. And, you know, as we go on, she's not she's not really afraid of things, but she's not just believing what's being told to her. Mm-hmm. She's going out and trying to figure stuff out. She cares about people and is trying to take care of people and and protect people and help people. Um, she can see things like we've seen some supernatural power in her that has been uh, in, unveiled. I don't know if you've gotten to that yet, but uh, if not, you you'll start to see that, like. Well, There's yeah, more no, to they, her they, than meets the eye. They've hinted a couple of weird powers. Okay, yeah. So you you've probably seen the same thing the same thing as I have so far. Yeah. So as it goes on, like I don't think we know who Rachel is yet. I like we're getting it slowly unveiled to us. Mm-hmm. And this book this book is Rachel Rising, not you know a bunch of women rising. Is <laughs> Rachel Rising? So uh, whereas with some other characters, we've gotten a lot more revealed in shorter periods. Like the way that Terry Moore is revealing different characters at different rates and different ways and some characters you think will be more substantial and then next thing you know they're dead and they're not the ones that are coming back and you know yeah. stuff like that yeah. um i mean even talking about the the pedophile foster dad it doesn't take long for them to really make you have strong feelings about him mm-hmm. but not but not in a completely shallow way either like the way that he does it it's not it's not being excessive to the point where, like, you hate him because you were dealt something excessive, um, but you hate him all the same because you see the juxtaposition of he's faking being this loving, caring person who wants to help children, and he's duplicitous. He's doing it behind his wife's back, mm-hmm. but he so quickly turns into this evil thing that but is, what, you know, really, and, what's really interesting though. Is that whenever you you come upon because that's a trope, right? Like, if you if you've seen similar stories to this or what you think this is, okay, um, the the foster dad who's a rapist or a child abuser um, and the wife is completely unaware, like that's that's a trope. Mm-hmm. It's been done yeah. a million times, right? And and what's really cool about the way this book handles all those tropes. Right, so there's that one, uh, you know, the the the, the morgue assistant, the the whole witchcraft trial story, uh, the demon thing. 
what's really cool about the way this book handles it is you you see those tropes and if you've seen them before which a smart reader would you're like oh wait like this is this is how this is going to end because i've seen this here and here and here and then it plays out but it's it's very minor to the story as opposed to what you would normally see it be kind of the big revelation in, and in it this, usually doesn't end the way you expect it either exactly, and, and that's exactly. i think that's one of the things like i, I mean you kind of helped me put this together in my head right now but uh that's one of the things that terry moore is doing to make us constantly feel like we know what's going on but then take that away from us but without it just being these like shocking things that are happening uh is he's giving us these things that we know that we feel comfortable with that this this is what this is and this is where this goes but then it's not happening that way, it, you know, and, right. and by doing that, it's, it's keeping us off kilter, but feeling like, you know, feeling confident in what we know. And I like I said, I think that the character of Rachel is, you know, a good deal representing that for us. You know, she is trying to figure out where things are going. She sees something and thinks that she knows what it is, but then it's not what it is, and she starts to realize that, mm-hmm. and she starts to dig into what it is, and it's taking her in different places. And, you know, I, I think that character is really uh, reflective of the journey that the reader is on in this book. I agree. And I think at that point we, we've we talked about what we're up to in Rachel Rising, so we are <laughs> done with the, the Rachel Rising episode of this. Uh, so for any... Yeah, for now, we, we may go come back to this. Uh, I believe we've mentioned this on prior episodes, but if anybody's listening for the first time uh, or if you listened to the first episode like nine months ago when it came out, thanks, Martin. Um, <laughs> we, we're using this to explore new things that we want to talk about, uh, books that are created by creators that want to put something out because they want it to be there. Um so far, this is our third book. Uh, next time, we're going to get on to a, another one that is a huge, you know, huge title and scope. Huge. Uh, so while we will most likely continue to read these things and finish them, we're not necessarily ever going to come back to them. This isn't going to be like a book club type of podcast where, okay, we talked about the first two volumes. Next time, we'll talk about the next two volumes. No, we would get bored with that. We don't want to do that. So. This is uh, your introduction to Rachel Rising. Hopefully you read some before you dove in with us. Uh, But even if you didn't, we haven't spoiled everything for you, so there's a lot more to explore out there. Um, Let us know what you thought about Rachel Rising. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Uh, So far, I just want to say, if if you've never heard of or read Rachel Rising and uh, this story intrigued you, let us know. But I, I really do highly recommend that people read this if you're if you're a horror fan i think you'll dig this if you're a mystery fan i think i think i think this book hits on so many genres that chances are you will enjoy this yeah this good horror like i don't like horror i don't like horror at all i don't like horror movies i don't like gore um but good horror doesn't rely on gore doesn't rely on shock and oh. that's that's this book and a, a good horror comic horror is the genre but the reason it's good is because it's not just relying on horror to be the book you know this this book is about these characters and about the events not mm-hmm. just about horrible things happening and that's that's what really sets it apart so if you if you do like i mean if you like any kind of horror i think you would like this um if you just like you said if you like suspense books you would like it if you like good character books, uh, you know, this is a really good book. Um, this is a book that there's just so many different people, I think, that would like it. Um, of course, Aaron Bell is the one that lets me down because he doesn't like anything that's really good. <laughs> well, I do want to say, too, um, I read – have you read Harrow County, Paul? I have not, but I keep on coming across that. So I, I recently read Harrow County, and it's it's freaking amazing, and I think – if you dug this, I think you'll really dig Harrow County. Um, at least, at least the first volume, um, because even uh, that that story that Tr- Terry Moore plays with about the witch hunt trials in the second volume, uh, that's kind of the focus of the first volume of uh, Harrow County. 
and uh, it's really well done. So I think if you if you like that book, read this. If you feel like you like this book, go read that. Anyway, yeah, that's my recommendation. From what I hear, if you like this, feel free to check out all the other Terry Moore stuff. I've heard great things about Echo. I've read a little bit of Strangers in Paradise. That definitely doesn't get into anything, uh, you know, fantastic and outlandish, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more rooted in real people. But that's what I really like about Terry Moore is, like, he really – he's really rooted in real people, you know, and, and Rachel Rising is – it feels really feels like a book about, you know, real people in these events, you know. Well, and so it, it, I think you and I both really appreciate character-driven stories, which this book is. But at the same time, not only is it character driven, there's a very interesting backstory going on. Yeah, it's very. So, it, there's so much story in this book too. It's yeah. yeah it's um, yeah. So, anyways, Rachel Rising. That's that's all we got to say about it for now. We may revisit it because I'm sure that both of us are going to finish reading the series. So we may once we finish it, we may do a revisit of uh, of the whole. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about Cerebus. Cerebus Woo! Volume One, which I believe is titled Cerebus. Uh, so for anybody who knows anything about Cerebus, which honestly, I don't know much about it. I haven't actually read any of it yet, but I uh, I got four the first four volumes on eBay. But I checked into Dave Sim and uh, and Cerebus a little bit. Um, my first exposure to him was him crossing over with the Ninja Turtles. My second exposure to him was him crossing over with Spawn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Dave Sim is an interesting character in comics, um, and I, I want to learn more about Dave Sim in general also. Uh, Cerebus was not written to be collected, so the collections are interesting. Uh, they're referred to as phone books because they are massive. massive. And they're printed on the same paper that the original comics were printed on. Um, there, there's just a lot of things that I find interesting about Cerebus, uh, so I'm looking forward to diving into that. Uh, so, yeah, for anybody who wants to follow on for next time, pick up the first volume of Cerebus and, and read into that some. Uh and yeah, I, I believe Dave Sim has those available for free. If not the whole first volume, then at least part of the first volume on his website. Yeah, and didn't you actually get them digitally in some way that was pretty darn affordable? Yeah, yeah, he's got um, – I'll have to find it. If I find the link, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but he's got a website where you can buy every volume for like 100 bucks. I want to say. Yeah, and you uh, can buy them like – Per volume, also you could buy them in bundles. I, bl- I believe yeah, there's a yeah. lot of different like quantities you could buy at a time to do it. Um, but yeah, and honestly, like the way I got it is I, I went on eBay and I bought four volumes of it for nice. like forty five bucks. So it was like ten bucks a volume. Yeah, that's um, good. yeah. So it's it's the kind of book that you're not gonna like walk into a bookstore and find it. Uh, but if you know how to shop for books at all, you'll find it. You know, yeah. look around at you know eBay, uh, a books. Um, Amazon perhaps might be a good one. Um, I would say try to find a used copy of it because uh, that way if, if you're not crazy about it, cool, you didn't spend as much. Um, and even if you are crazy about it, it's not like the pristine brand new copy is like the you know fanciest printing or anything. So um, yeah, so check it out. Uh, because of the timing of, of this show, you may have noticed that uh, the first few episodes are going to come out about a two weeks apart yes this is the third one so by the time you get to this you will have had two and uh that, that's because of getting it set up on itunes and we had one backlogged before we recorded this and literally today is the day that itunes accepted it after having that pending for some time yep. uh so our next episode will be two weeks after this one when it gets released uh even though for us in the real world uh we'll record it about a month later after that, we will be at least a monthly podcast, um, possibly more. But there's a lot more reading for this podcast than for other podcasts that we do oh, yeah. on the Nerdy Legion Network. So, so we'll, we'll kind of have to see, but at least monthly. But that'll be good because it'll give uh, you guys time to find and read some of what we're going to talk about. Please do, do also give us suggestions of things that you would like us to talk about because we have a few ideas that are obvious ones backlogged, but suggestions are good. Uh, so give us suggestions. Um, you can email us, hello at nerdylegion.com. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Who's Paul. Martin is at Geekvine. And uh, is there anything else to say, Martin? Uh, no, that's it. All right. So You can find the show on uh, all the, uh, the, 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 the 
the podcast things. Uh, I got yesterday <laughs> notifications for Google Play Music, uh, Stitcher, iTunes, Pocket Cast, and today iTunes. So it, it's on all the major ones. So everybody should go listen to this over and over on all the different ways to listen to it and let us know which one you like the best. Yeah. That would probably be a waste of time. Instead of doing that, go get Cerebus and read it uh, so you could be part of the conversation with us.